Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, we've been going pretty fast with Tech Stuff over the past, I don't know, decade. So I felt maybe it was time to apply the brakes a little bit. I don't mean to slow down the show or stop it, but rather to take time to talk about how brakes work and the science surrounding brakes, because puns are sort of a thing I do. But seriously, I thought this would give us a chance to talk about mechanical and hydraulic systems, as well as the science that's behind braking, the physics that are involved. So... First, let's talk about what makes brakes necessary in the first place, which is pretty obvious stuff, but it leads into a discussion about physical forces that guided the whole evolution of brakes. So, a body in motion has momentum. Momentum is a quantity of movement. It depends upon two things, the mass of the object that's in motion and how quickly that mass is moving. So, Really, it comes down to how much of the stuff is there and how fast is it going. A simple equation would be momentum equals mass times velocity. So if you have something with a low mass, like a bullet, but it's traveling at a high velocity, it has a pretty good amount of momentum. If you have something that's really, really huge, like a glacier, but it's moving incredibly slowly, it still has a lot of momentum because momentum depends upon both the mass and the velocity, not just one or the other. Now, if you have something that's of a pretty decent size, like a vehicle, and it's moving at a pretty good speed, then that has got a lot of momentum too. And that's a problem, right? If you've got a mass that's moving at a pretty good speed and you need to stop that mass, you have to figure out how do you offset that momentum? How do you convert this movement energy into something else? So momentum is also a vector quantity. Vectors in physics have not just a magnitude, but also a direction. Acceleration is the same. It has a uh, a magnitude and a direction. So to fully describe momentum, we need not just how many kilograms of mass are traveling at a speed typically in meters per second, but also the direction of travel. Now, a body in motion has kinetic energy as well. So to reduce momentum and stop a body in motion, you need to convert that kinetic energy, that energy of movement, into something else. Because we have to remember the laws of conservation, the, the laws of the universe, we, we, energy cannot be created. It cannot be destroyed. We cannot just make energy. We cannot destroy energy. We can convert it from one form into another. So brakes do this by converting the kinetic energy of an object in motion into heat through friction. And you've probably heard the term waste heat. Now, what we mean by that is that we've got some sort of system. It can be pretty much any given mechanical system in particular, but really other systems as well, biological systems. Uh, so it could be pretty much anything. And in the system, some of the energy that we're depending on is going not to whatever it is we're trying to do, but rather into generating heat. So with a bicycle, some of the energy we're putting forth by pedaling is not going directly to making us move. We're losing it in the form of friction and thus heat. 
um, really the heat that's generated from friction. That's the best way of putting it. The heat represents energy that we could not otherwise exploit for whatever it is we're trying to do. So here's another example. Uh, with an electrical generator, we might say that the friction of the moving parts inside that electrical generator means that some of the kinetic energy we would otherwise use to create more electricity is instead converting to heat, and that heat isn't being captured in any meaningful way. So the work we did to... Uh, direct this kinetic energy to the generator was wasted, some of that work. We weren't able to get 100% efficiency. So no system is perfect. Any system with moving parts is going to have friction to deal with. And there are a lot of super smart materials scientists out there who have worked really hard to develop stuff that generates very little friction, and that is in an effort to increase efficiency and minimize waste heat. But when it comes to brakes, we want that friction. That's what is stopping an object. So we need something that is uh, really good at creating this friction. We want to convert that kinetic energy into heat and thus decrease the momentum of a fast-moving, massive object, perhaps even bringing that object to a complete stop, not just slowing it down, but stopping it. So in the very early days of brake systems, even before there were cars, you were looking at a pretty simple device. And this would be in the horse-drawn carriage era. You've got a, a carriage that's being pulled by horses. Even when the horses start to slow down, you know, you still have the momentum of the actual carriage itself. You need to slow down the carriage uh, to, to come to a stop. So the brake was typically a lever, and the long end of the lever was extended up toward the driver. That was the handle side. So the long side of the lever is the handle. On the short end of the lever was a wooden block, uh, the wooden block was, when you pull the lever, would make contact typically with the driver's side front wheel of the carriage to create that source of friction and convert the kinetic energy of the turning wheel into heat and thus slow and eventually stop the carriage. A lever is one of the classic simple machines. It's a bar that rotates around a fulcrum, and a fulcrum is just a fixed point. So the length of the lever on either side of the fulcrum determines the amount of effort or force exerted or acquired per side in a classic class one lever. A lever makes certain types of work such as lifting easier by reducing the workload that is needed to affect a change, to, to create that lift. There are three classes of levers. And I just mentioned class one lever. That's the one where you've got a force that's applied on one end of the lever you have a load, the thing you're trying to move or activate on the other end of the lever, and the fulcrum is somewhere in between those two. If it's in the center of the bar, then the fulcrum ends up balancing loads on either side. If you put equal loads on either side, it should just balance out, kind of like, you know, just a scale, if you think of it that way. So a seesaw or a teeter-totter would be an example of a class one lever. Uh, if two people weigh the same on a seesaw, it balances out. But if you put a heavier person on one end and a lighter person on the other, the heavier person sinks down, the lighter person goes up into the air. Uh, but if the heavier person were to scoot forward on the seesaw to decrease the space between the heavier person and the fulcrum, then you would eventually balance out. And if the heavier person kept scooting forward to get closer to the fulcrum, the lighter person would eventually sink to the bottom and the heavier person would be up in the air. Uh, so by decreasing the distance between the load and the fulcrum, 
you can uh, increase the the lifting power essentially, or the really you're decreasing the amount of force needed to lift that load. If you're really thinking about it that way, you're creating a mechanical advantage. Uh, but there are two other classes of levers. I should probably cover those because uh, some of them actually factor into brakes as well later down the line. Class two levers put the fulcrum on one end of a bar. So instead of it being in the middle somewhere, the fulcrum, the fixed point, is actually on one end of the bar. The load is somewhere in the middle of the bar, and the force is at the far end of the bar. So a wheelbarrow is this type of lever, because these can be kind of difficult to imagine otherwise. But if you think about it, the wheel on a wheelbarrow is a fulcrum, and you put a load of stuff into the wheelbarrow itself, and then you lift the other side of the wheelbarrow by the handles. So the closer the load is to the fulcrum, the more the mechanical advantage you will have, uh, and the less you will, the less effort you'll need to lift the handles for a given load. Or you could think of it another way: the heavier the load you will be able to manage, as long as it's closer to the fulcrum. A class three lever has the fulcrum on one end, the load at the other end, and the lifting force is in the middle. Now, these levers don't provide mechanical advantage, but they can increase the speed at which a force moves a load. Uh, a baseball bat would be an example of this, or even your your own forearm would be an example of this. But we're going to leave that off from here because class three levers don't really factor into the discussion for braking. So the wooden block brake is a class one lever. On one end is the wooden block. It's positioned near the carriage wheel. A little bit further up from the wooden block is the fulcrum, the fixed point, uh, closer to the wooden block than to the handle. And the other end of the lever, the long end, has the handle. So the handle must travel a greater distance than the wooden block when you pull back on the brake. Uh, you are pulling the, the brake back much further than the wooden block has to travel to make contact with the the carriage wheel, but by increasing that distance, you reduce the amount of work you need to do on the force end to get a result on the load end. Uh, this is important because if you're going pretty fast and you need to slow down that wheel, you need to exert a good deal of force to create enough friction and convert that kinetic energy into heat. Uh, you couldn't easily do that if you were, let's say, just holding a wooden block and just trying to push the wooden block directly against the carriage wheel. You probably wouldn't be able to do that with enough force to make uh, a difference in a sufficient amount of time. By putting it on this lever, you can increase the amount of force you're exerting on the wheel itself, on the carriage wheel, uh, through pressure with this wooden block than you would if you were to do it directly. So the lever makes the job easier. Very important part of uh, physics in general. The brake system made the transition from horse-drawn carriages to some of the earliest automobiles in the 19th century, and it was the same sort of thing. They were using wooden blocks. Uh, the wheels on these early automobiles were often metal. There, there were no rubber tires yet. Uh, and they worked reasonably well under certain conditions, namely that the vehicles were traveling at slower speeds. We're talking below 20 miles per hour or below 32 kilometers per hour. And traffic was pretty light in those days, so there weren't a lot of incidents where you would need to brake quickly due to an increased amount of traffic on the streets. But you also weren't necessarily, uh, it wasn't necessarily a good idea to go like driving a car up a steep hill, for example, because your braking system was pretty primitive. The only way you would prevent yourself from rolling backwards was either by applying 
uh, more acceleration to overcome the force of gravity that's pulling you down, uh, or to hold a brake real strong against that wheel so that you're not slipping backward. Uh, this also was probably a good thing. Like, it's probably a good thing you weren't going very fast, not just because the brakes were primitive, but because those wheels were metal, you would feel it when you would run over bumps in the road, of which there were many. It was very similar to, if you remember my episodes about the history of the bicycle, the bone shaker, that was a nickname for a type of early bicycle that was really uncomfortable to ride. It was a very uh, uh, stiff ride, you might say. But it was clear the lever approach wasn't going to remain sufficient as cars were getting faster and heavier and traffic was increasing. You could stop a faster car with a lever brake, but it would take longer as you converted that kinetic energy into heat through friction. So you didn't come to a stop in as reasonable amount of space. You know, and an increase in traffic, you had a decrease in the amount of time you had in order to slow down to avoid collisions. So something had to change. A couple of people came up with some very clever alternatives. One was a, a proposal that was made in 1898. It was actually not just proposed, it was developed. It was the creation of Elmer Ambrose Sperry of Cleveland, Ohio. Sperry's solution involved using disc brakes. Now, I'm going to cover modern disc brakes a little later in this episode, but it's good to just go ahead and, and explain what the general idea was because it remained the same even later on. So let's say you've got a wheel and you've got that hub of the wheel. This is part that turns on the axle. Attached to that, you have a disc uh, that is really just part of the hub of the wheel, but it's separate from the tire. So you've got this freestanding disc. Positioned over this disc is a set of calipers so that either side of the caliper are on either side of the disc and it can pinch down on the disc, just like your fingers would pinch down if you had, let's say, a spinning Frisbee between two fingers and you brought, uh, you know, your friend is holding their two fingers together and the Frisbee is spinning around on the axle of those two fingers. If you brought your fingers like calipers right on the edge and then pinched, you could stop the Frisbee in its spin. That's the same idea as this set of disc brakes. The... Uh, uh, the, in a sense, it's working very similar to the way the wooden block that would press directly against the wheel itself works, except instead of, of hitting the wheel, you're hitting this disc that's attached to the wheel. Um, pretty clever. And Sperry was working on an early electric vehicle. You may remember in some of my previous episodes, I've talked about how electric cars actually predate internal combustion engine cars. Uh, the earliest automobiles were electric vehicles, not not gasoline-powered vehicles. So he's working on this electric car, and he was actually using electromagnetism to close those calipers, to shut them, uh, to attract the pincher to the disc and have it clamped tight enough to start to break the wheel. Uh, springs that were attached to the calipers would create the force that would allow the calipers to open up again once the electromagnetic field went away. So if you were to step on a brake in Sperry's design, you would cause a current to flow through the braking system, thus generating the electromagnetic field and forcing the calipers closed and breaking the disc, breaking B-R-A-K-I-N-G, the disc. 
letting off the foot pedal brake would interrupt the current. So the field would dissipate, the springs on the caliper would pull the caliper open again. It was a very ingenious uh, creation, but Sperry's invention didn't catch on in the States. A similar idea would take off in Europe, however. And I'll talk about a different braking system that would see early success in the United States, and that early success would extend all the way into the modern day. But I'll do that in just a second. First, let's take a quick break. So right around the same time Sperry was working on the disc brake solution, Gottlieb Daimler was developing a different approach called the drum brake. Uh, Daimler's idea was to attach a drum mounted on an axle and to wrap a cable around that drum, and pulling the brake would create tension on the cable, tightening it around the drum and creating the friction needed to slow and then stop a vehicle. So if you can think of maybe... Uh, a spinning axle, and then wrapping a belt around it, and then pulling the belt really taut so that that creates that friction, and then slowing the axle down. It's similar to that. So you have this dedicated drum for this purpose. Uh, This was an idea that Wilhelm Maybach used in 1901 in some early Mercedes designs, but it was Louis Renault who defined the drum brake as a standard in vehicles. It was Renault's... uh, Uh, design that really took off. That being said, there were also a ton of different mechanics and engineers working on this problem, and so the idea may have been developing in parallel around the world. Renault gets the credit for making this the first really practical drum break, but lots of people were working on this because the automobile was a, a rising technology at the time. Now, the drum brake is a pretty clever invention, and a modernized version is still used in many vehicles today, though typically only for the rear wheels for most passenger vehicles. It was also the dominant form of braking systems in the United States until the 1970s, though in Europe things were a little different. The original drum brakes worked great on flat surfaces. These drum brakes that had a a, uh, a belt or a st- strip of metal or something wrapped around a drum that would then tighten to slow things down. Those worked fine on flat surfaces. A brake race in 1902 pitted a horse-drawn coach that had a a lever-style brake against a Victoria horseless carriage that had an internal drum brake and a custom vehicle that was created by a guy named Ransom E. Olds, and he called it the Oldsmobile. Yep, that's where that comes from. So, like I said, the coach had a tire brake, the horseless carriage had an internal drum brake, which I'll talk about in a second, and the Oldsmobile had a different drum brake design that used a band of stainless steel wrapped around the drum. So pressing on the brake pedal rather than pulling a lever would contract this band so that it would grip the drum more tightly and thus create the friction. The Oldsmobile proved it could stop in less time and thus travel the least distance while braking than the other two vehicles. So this meant that for a while, external brakes, in which the braking mechanism is on the outside of the drum, were more popular. But both external and internal drum braking systems existed at the same time. So what was an internal drum brake system? Well, in that case, you have the drum assembly that's mounted on a wheel or an axle, So just think of, it's almost like a pot, right? It's just mounted 
on there, and then everything is inside this pot. Uh, So you have these extendable parts inside the drum that are called shoes. And these extendable shoes are anchored with respect to the car. So they are not rotating. They are stationary with respect to the chassis of the vehicle. So the drum rotates around these shoes as, uh, as the car is in motion. The shoes have braking material, so a material meant to generate friction coating the surface of the shoe itself, the stopping surface. So when you engage the brake, when you step on the brake pedal, a a system extends these shoes on the inside of the drum so that that braking surface is rubbing up against the inside edge of that rotating drum. So it's the same effect that you were getting before, this idea of pressing a surface against a moving object in order to generate friction and convert kinetic energy into heat. It's just, in this case, it's happening on the inside of a rotating surface, not on the outside of the rotating surface. Uh, the This is really interesting stuff. It's a little difficult to envision just from my audio, I imagine. But if you really want to look into this and see some diagrams and some animations, things like that, how Stuff Works has several articles about brakes, including how drum brakes work, and that's incredibly useful. So if you want to check in on a visual aid, I highly recommend that. Uh, I don't write for How Stuff Works anymore, but I still respect the heck out of the articles that are on that site. They're incredibly useful, especially for stuff like this, to get an understanding of these mechanical systems. So in addition, Uh, These brakes would typically have some sort of cable or belt wrapped around the drum. So you would have a lot of cars that would have kind of a hybrid system where they have both external and internal braking uh, systems incorporated into the same overall brake system and create more friction more, more efficiently so that you could convert that kinetic energy into heat and stop faster. Now, early on, the external drum brake systems were believed to be superior. They could stop a car faster and less time, uh, less distance than uh, internal ones. But they did have some big drawbacks. One of those was that the brakes would tend to unwind if you tried to stop halfway up a hill. So you, you're driving, you got a hill. Let's say you're in San Francisco. That's a great example. You're in San Francisco, you hit a hill, you're driving up the hill, and then you're coming up to an intersection where you have to stop. Well, that was an issue because the brakes would unwind at that point. Gravity would create a backward pull on the car to pull it back down the hill, and that would cause the bands wrapped around the drum to unwind, and the car would actually start to roll backwards. For that reason, early motorists would sometimes carry wedged blocks called chocks, just like you would have for an airplane, and you would actually, there's footage of people who were driving cars around that time who would jump out of their car with these wooden blocks, run behind the cars it's starting to roll backward, and try to wedge those blocks behind the wheels so that the car wasn't rolling backward anymore. The external brakes also had no protection against dirt and other debris, so they would get dirty and they would wear down relatively quickly, which would necessitate frequent maintenance or replacement of those brakes. The internal drum braking systems were protected from debris and dirt, right? Because they're inside the drum. So that stuff wasn't getting to them. Although as you use the drum brakes over and over and over again, they do develop 
uh, dust inside the drum itself because it's actually wearing away both the brake pads and the inside of the drum. You know, that friction is slowly grinding away some of that material. Uh, but also because of the design, the shoes inside a drum could maintain pressure for as long as the brake was engaged, which meant there was no need to worry about rolling backward down a hill. If you had the brake pressed, then you know it wasn't unwinding if it was an internal drum brake. The brakes would last longer than external brakes, but they weren't as effective at stopping the vehicle as quickly. So for that reason, some car manufacturers chose to employ both types of brakes on the rear wheels of vehicles in particular, so that both an external and internal drum brake system could work together from the same press of a brake pedal. In those early systems, everything was purely mechanical. We haven't gotten to the hydraulic sections yet. So that meant that it was using stuff like cables and rods and levers to do mechanical work and to move these different elements uh, to where they needed to be. Eventually, that gave way to hydraulic systems, but we'll have a different type of break to talk about first before we get into hydraulics. So that means we need to get back to Sperry's disc brakes. His implementation didn't get much traction. And yes, that's a pun. But... Others began to work on similar designs, possibly with complete independence and without knowledge of Sperry's work, because like I said, a lot of people were working on this at the same time. Uh, one of those was an inventor named F.W. Lanchester in the UK who received a patent in 1902 for a mechanical approach to the disc brake design. So instead of the electromagnetic approach, the calipers would be controlled by a cable. The cable, when pulled taut, would force the calipers closed. But Lanchester's solution wasn't ideal. The disc mounted to the wheel hub was made of metal, which makes sense, but the brake pads that were actually on the caliper were made out of copper. So when you were applying a brake, it meant that you were applying two copper pads on either side of a rapidly spinning metal disc. And as you might imagine, this created no small amount of noise. Uh, from what I understand, it was the type of high-pitched screeching noise that was not that different from what you might get with fingernails dragged down a chalkboard. So not a pleasant sound. In addition, the brake pads would wear down very quickly and had the same issues with dirt and debris that the external drum systems had. So Lanchester's solution was, like Sperry's, largely unimplemented. A dude named Frude made the next big contribution— his name is Herbert Frude. He was an English engineer who took the brake pads and lined them with a substance that would cut back on that noise. It was a long-lasting material that could withstand a lot of abuse, and it would become a common brake pad material for both disc brakes and drum brakes, and still is used in a lot of brakes today. That material was asbestos. Yikes. So, Asbestos was long considered a truly remarkable substance with a ton of practical applications. It's actually a group of silicate minerals. It's not just one. And this group all have similar traits. They're fibrous, which means you can actually draw the stuff out and create a material that's similar in consistency to, to cotton balls in a way. It's heat resistant. It's an electrical insulator. And it holds up against a lot of otherwise corrosive chemicals. So it can make other stuff stronger when you mix the substances together, and it was a common additive for everything from cement to paper. But what was not known for a very long time was that asbestos is actually 
incredibly toxic. Now, as I said, it's fibrous. And so there are these tiny asbestos fibers in the mineral. And these can easily be swallowed or inhaled without your knowledge. They're microscopic in size, so you're not able to spot them. And due to those qualities I mentioned earlier, the fact that the fibers are so resistant to so many different things, it also means that they can last indefinitely inside a person's body, and there's no real way to flush them out. They don't dissolve. And these trapped fibers can cause inflammation and even much worse problems, genetic damage to cells. Uh, they can lead to, to development of cancer. The illnesses take a really long time to develop, too, like between 20 to 50 years, which is one of the reasons asbestos remained in popular use for so long. It took ages to figure out that it was hazardous in the first place because the effects took so long to manifest. Now... Nearly all the auto manufacturers in the United States stopped making asbestos brake pads in the 1990s. But there are a lot of aftermarket companies that continue to do so, largely manufacturing in places like China and India and Mexico. So to this day, there are aftermarket brake pads that have potentially dangerous amounts of asbestos in them. Now, that probably doesn't pose a huge health hazard to the average driver, but it is a concern for mechanics, for people who work on brake systems regularly. That's something that they should actively be concerned about and protect themselves against because there's no telling uh, if someone's getting cheap brake pads from overseas because, you know, they're, they are le much less expensive than buying them here domestically. There's a chance that one of the materials in there is asbestos and it could be in a concentration high enough for it to be a danger. So just... To be aware, if you happen to be someone who works on such things, just, uh, you know, you need to just be careful. Wear, wear masks and stuff. Now, I've got a lot more to say about brakes, including the introduction of hydraulics and modern braking systems. But first, let's take another quick break. Now, it didn't take long for engineers to look into hydraulics to work with car brakes. Cars were getting heavier and faster, which meant the brake systems needed to be up to the task of bringing these increasingly speedy hunks of metal to a stop. In 1918, Malcolm Lockheed, actually Lafeed at the time, uh, began to experiment with hydraulics. So what exactly is a hydraulic system and why is it important? Well, hydraulics is a branch of science that is really about the practical applications of fluids, typically liquids. It's largely, but not exclusively, about how those fluids move through systems like pipes, channels, and tanks. Blaise Pascal and Daniel Bernoulli first worked out the basic principles of fluid dynamics and hydraulic power, but people had been making practical use of fluids for some time already. So this was one of those things where people had figured out that they could, could use fluids to do work, but no one had quite worked out the science behind it yet until Pascal and Bernoulli came along. Pascal figured out that a pressure in an incompressible liquid transmits equally in all directions. And this law ends up being incredibly useful if you want to leverage fluids to do work. Bernoulli's law stated that energy in a fluid remains constant, but that changing things, like the diameter of a pipe, will change the pressure in a system. The energy remains the same, but the flow slows down as it encounters a larger diameter and the surface area of the fluid presses against is increased. And effectively, what that means is you can create mechanical advantage through hydraulic systems. 
So if we have a closed system with incompressible fluid, so you, you, if you push against the fluid, you can't compress it to a smaller form. It's going to push against all areas equally. Uh, we can actually transfer force from one side of a system to another with the liquid acting as the carrier for that force. And by changing the sizes of cylinders and pistons, you can also uh, amplify force by trading force for distance. Kind of similar to what we were doing when we were talking about levers. So let's say we've got two pistons connected in a hydraulic system. It's much easier to understand if we take a concrete example or at least a hypothetical example. So we've got piston one. Piston one is two inches in diameter or one inch radius. That's uh, 5.8 centimeters in diameter. Piston two is six inches in diameter or 15.24 centimeters in diameter. So then we have to figure out the area of these two pistons. And uh, area of a circle is pi times the radius squared. So piston one has the radius of one inch. One inch squared is one. One times pi is 3.14, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we just will simplify it to say 3.14 is the area of our first piston. Our second piston has an area of 28.26 because it's much larger. So that means piston two is nine times the size of piston one in area. If we apply a force to piston one in this closed system where we have liquid acting as the, uh, the transmission force between one piston and the other, so we push a, a piston one down, we're going to get nine times that force on piston two. So if we push down on piston one with 100 pounds of force, it makes piston two go up with 900 pounds of force because piston two is nine times the size of piston one. However, there is a trade-off. That trade-off is in the distance traveled by the, each piston. Piston two will travel one-ninth the distance of piston one. So in order to make piston two rise up one inch, you would have to push piston one down nine inches. Push down piston one nine inches into a cylinder at 100 pounds of pressure, piston two will lift up one inch with 900 pounds of pressure. So you amplify the force, you decrease the distance. Lockheed's method in which hydraulic pressure would create the force that would push a brake shoe against the brake drums wasn't embraced immediately. According to Popular Mechanics, the first passenger car to have four-wheel hydraulic brakes was the Model A Duesenberg in 1921. A decade later, a handful of car manufacturers were using hydraulics in the brake systems, but the rest were still relying on cable brakes. Ford would be the last of the major manufacturers to make the switch to hydraulics, and that happened in 1939. Going back just a bit, in 1928, another advance helped make hydraulic disc brakes practical. It was the power assist technology, and that would reduce the physical effort a driver would have to exert to apply the brakes. So if you didn't have power assist, you would find that you had to push that brake pedal really hard in order to stop. So instead of having to really stomp on the brake pedal, the driver just uses a little effort, and the car itself would help to do the rest. The 1928 Pierce Arrow used vacuum that was generated by the inlet manifold of the engine to offset the physical force required by the driver. Diesel-powered cars, by the way, actually require a secondary vacuum pump 
to generate the vacuum necessary for the power assist because their engines don't work the same way. Anyway, describing how all this works is tricky without using visual aids. It involves a diaphragm that initially has a partial vacuum on either side of the, di the di diaphragm, but when you press the brake pedal, it opens up a valve on the vacuum booster side of the diaphragm and it increases the pressure on that side and thus gives the boost to the driver who's pushing down on the brake. To understand this, I really recommend looking at the article How Power Brakes Work on the HowStuffWorks site because, like I said, it's really hard to describe just in audio alone and have it make any sense. But the point is, this was one of those necessary features to make hydraulic brakes practical to remove some of that effort that was required in order to push down on the brake. Oh, and, and hey, remember when I talked about the lever at the top of the episode and how the distances between a force, a fulcrum, and a load can affect how much force you apply on a system? The same is true with brake pedals. Brake pedals are actually levers. They're class two levers. So the distance the pedal has to travel tends to be much greater than the distance from the pedal cylinder to the pivot. So the force of the pedal will be multiplied at the point of the cylinder. So these are all both, uh, these are all like mechanical ways to make it easier to actually apply the brakes, physically easier. Typically, a hydraulic brake system has one master cylinder. So this is the one that's actually controlled by your brake pedal, the pedal cylinder, with a piston that connects via a rod to the brake pedal. So it's like a direct line from the brake pedal through a rod to the, uh, the actual piston for the master cylinder. There's usually some more complicated stuff in there now, especially for modern vehicles, but this is the basic idea. Each wheel on a car tends to have its own secondary cylinder, sometimes called a slave cylinder, the master cylinder and the slave cylinders. The master cylinder tends to be smaller than the slave cylinders, so we get that force amplification effect I just talked about. This is what allows the brakes to apply enough force to slow down a massive vehicle traveling at high speeds, just from a human stepping down on a brake pedal. All right, so we've covered drum brakes, which you can still find on many car models on the rear wheels, and we've covered disc brakes, which were adopted quickly in Europe and later in America and tend to be the brake system used for front wheels. Both systems now rely on hydraulics to transmit force from the brake pedal to the brakes attached to the respective wheels, to those, those uh, uh, brake shoes or the brake calipers. There's also the emergency brake, which may have a physical cable attached to a brake shoe uh, that in turn is attached to one or more wheels. And there's one other advance I feel like I should cover, and that's anti-lock braking systems or ABS. What are they and how do they work? Well, a skidding wheel has less traction than a non-skidding wheel. And a skidding wheel is one in which the patch of tire in contact with the road is sliding relative to that road, and the wheel, the tire itself is not rotating anymore. It's locked. So if you can brake a car without locking the tire, like without locking the wheels down entirely, but rather applying pressure so that the wheels are slowed to a stop, you're in better shape. You're not going to skid out and have a terrible accident, or at least you won't have a terrible accident in that way. This is particularly important on slippery road conditions, and that's what ABS or anti-lock brake systems do. So an ABS has four main additional components on top of the regular brake system. You have speed sensors. That's what's monitoring the speed of rotation of the wheels. You have a uh, set of valves. You have a pump. And you have a controller. 
The sensors are pretty self-explanatory. Like I said, they monitor the wheels. They look for signs that the wheel is about to lock into position, uh, which means, you know, the wheel would actually stop spinning entirely. The sensors may be located at each wheel or it might be located at the differential. The valves are meant to control brake pressure from the master cylinder. So the master cylinder is providing the pressure for the overall brake system. A valve can be open and thus send pressure onto the brake system as per normal. So in other words, it's, it's almost as if the valve's not even there. It could be closed and block the hydraulics from going to the brake from the master cylinder. This would be for each individual wheel would have its own. So it's not like one for all four wheels. It's one for each wheel. So in that case, the hydraulic fluid would essentially bypass that wheel's brake system. And then the valve has a third position to release some of the pressure from the brake system. Now, because there's a pressure release system, the ABS needs a pump to build pressure up again. And the controller is essentially the brains. It's in charge of the whole thing. The controller sends signals to decrease or increase brake pressure to individual wheels to avoid lockup while still allowing for deceleration. The hydraulic system begins to pulse a bit as this happens, which can feel a little weird if, you, if you're not used to it. Uh, and those, that pulse can be fast. It can be like 15 times per second with some vehicles. ABS doesn't magically make cars safer in all conditions. But they do come in really handy, as I said, in those slippery road conditions. So they do have a real benefit. But that does not mean that ABS is magically going to make every driver safer. There are possible problems that you can encounter. So for one example, when you're braking with a system that doesn't have anti-lock brakes, you can't steer while you're braking. Steering is locked. With ABS, you can still steer while you're braking, and sometimes that can actually lead to uh, drivers making bad decisions and, and steering off the road. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about brake systems and newer innovations in the space. Uh, there are some high-tech things that we can cover, but I think I'm going to save that for another episode. We'll, we'll talk more in detail about some cutting-edge materials and, and uh, techniques in braking sometime down the line. But for now, let's put a stop to this. If you guys have suggestions for future topics for Tech Stuff, why not write me and let me know? The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or pop on by our website. The URL for that is techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find links there to our social media as well as to the merchandise store. Remember, every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 